Welcome to Shelf Logic, the official podcast of the Maricopa County Library District. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Check This Out. Woohoo! My name is Rob. I'm here with Kristen. How you doing, Kristen? I'm doing great. How would you like to talk about... Well, I'm going to let you pick the topic today. <laughs> well, let's see. Since we last spoke about gothic horror, I think we should go the other way and speak about modern horror and diversity in horror, since gothic fiction is typically very straight white male. Okay, but you want to stick with the horror theme. Yes. Now, when you say diversity in horror, are we talking about diversity like subgenres or diversity as in equity, inclusiveness and diversity? Both, but yes, prim primarily regarding equity and basically own voices fiction. E equity and inclusion is the, best, is, is the best way to say it. And why do you think it's important to address this? So the benefits of it are twofold. On the one hand, um, there have been many studies that have, many studies have been done showing that reading fiction increases empathy. And so if you are a member of the majority class and you're reading something with a minority character, uh, be it uh, race, gender, sexual orientation, different culture, different religion, whatever. And, you know, particularly, like, if you have a well-drawn, well-developed protagonist who is different from you, who has different life experiences than you, and you can kind of see the world through their eyes, then that increases empathy. And, you know, studies have shown that you know, the best way to increase empathy for people who are not like you is to expand your social circle to include the, you know, people who are not like you. But you can do that with fiction. You can make, you can make new fictional friends. And the reason I think that it works so well with horror is the stakes are so high. Like, the stakes are, you know, life or death, mm. or, you know, loss of your, you know, physical autonomy, uh, loss of your you know, maybe your grip on reality, loss of your, uh, your mental faculties, it's immediate. You know, this is, these are problems that need to be solved ASAP or terrible, irreversible things are going to happen. And so the emotions are ratcheted up. I feel like that makes you identify with the protagonist even more. Well, why does horror have a bad reputation as low literature? It's kind of like it's it's kind of like romance, right? You know, there's no romance or horror or very little that's considered great literature. Right. And if if it is, then people will bend over backwards. And by people I usually mean, you know, like generally speaking like critics will bend over backwards to not call it horror. They will try to call it something else. They will call it a social thriller. They will terms that I've come across in the last several years reading reviews, um, post-horror, which doesn't even make sense because post means after. So like that, does, I don't even know what that term means, but I've come across the term post-horror 
and also elevated horror. Elevated horror <laughs> is a big one. I like. I think that's like they're trying to say, you know, they're oh, trying to elevate it. Right. It's horror, but it's it's good. You yeah, know? yeah. But I, I think that a lot of the bad rep of horror is, you know, just from people who maybe who just don't realize that there are so many. There's so much nuance, and just like with with anything. There are subgenres, and there is nuance, and a lot of it. I, I think a lot of the bad rep comes from the slasher genre. Okay. You know, people. A, a lot of times when people are looking down on horror, what they're actually thinking of typically are slasher movies, where you've got Halloween, a, Chainsaw Massacre. Exactly. Yeah, you've got a a a killer going around butchering young people who make terrible decisions. But horror literature has been around since, as we talked about last time. Sure. Since Frankenstein and before Frankenstein. But now those things are considered classics. Frankenstein, Dracula, Carmilla, as we spoke about mm -hmm. last time, which is just, people are just kind of realizing Carmilla. Yeah. You know, all that's considered classics now. Well, so is, uh, say, Jaws. Oh, totally. Yeah, Jaws is totally a modern classic. Right. Yeah. Would you count Halloween as a classic? I would, okay. because it really serves as the template for so many movies that came after. Fair you enough. You know, the, uh, the concept of the final girl, which is, you know, which is typically, typically that is in a slasher, but, you know, you've got a group of, you know, usually, you know, like, teenagers, college age, you know, mixed group of men and women, and it's the one, the one girl who figures, you know, and she's usually the one that everyone ignores. Mm, the nerdy you know, girl. Right, she, yeah, exactly, and that's there, and that's where um, kind of like the prototype of Halloween, you know, Lori, Jamie Lee Curtis's mm -hmm. character in Halloween, you know, her friends care nothing, they don't care about anything except Partying. For, yeah, they, nothing except for partying. And she's, you know, she's bookish. She's kind of on the quiet side. She's not a partier. Um, and her friends are, quite honestly, I don't know why she was friends with these people because they seemed <laughs> like they had absolutely nothing in common, but I get it was a small town. Um, and they're, they're, these friends of hers who care about nothing except partying, they are completely oblivious to their surroundings. Like, she figures out pretty early in the movie that something is not right. She can sense that they're being followed around, and she just, she knows that something is not quite right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, and she's not, she's not an outcast, but she also doesn't really quite fit in either. And those are the one, those are the ones who typically survive. So you're Sometimes they can even save their friends in the process, but most of the time they're the last one standing. They either defeat the killer or they at least escape to fight another day, and they are more resilient and they have more knowledge as a result. So you're saying Halloween is, it should be considered a classic because it gave us a blueprint for the modern slasher. Yes. How would you define horror as a genre? Well, the thing that's problematic about horror as a genre label is that horror is an emotion. Okay. And so you can have elements of horror in practically everything. It's a matter, a lot of it is a matter of degree. 
So, like, for instance, um, you know, a lot of mystery novels involve detectives hunting a serial killer. Horror, fantasy, science fiction, anything that you could call, th those, anything that envisions an alternate, like, what if universe, that all kind of falls under the umbrella of speculative fiction, which is exactly like what it sounds like. And then with horror, there, I find it a lot easier to discuss it by breaking it down into subgenres. Since, hor since horror is an emotion, mm -hmm. it's easiest. Like if you're trying to figure out, you know, somebody, somebody, uh, you know, comes into the library, you know, oh, I'm looking for horror. Great. What do you want to read about? Are you into haunted houses and ghosts? Do you want to read about serial killers, demonic possession, a dystopian alternate universe? Well, let me There's... let me go down that road a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, is horror different from other genres? If you if you want to read about horror, mm -hmm. there there aren't a whole lot of like teenage slasher books, right? If you want to read about horror, you're reading about I mean, you have serial killers, but it's it's a it's different from slasher movies? I don't know, what do you... Th I, I, get, I, I get where you're going whereas, with whereas it, but Whereas with there, mystery and romance, there the movies are, and the literature are more similar? There are slasher books. Well, you say slasher books exist, yes. but with horror movies, slasher horror movies are probably one of the most popular subgenres of horror movies where it's not a big thing in horror literature, right? Slasher books? Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, the slasher subgenre is definitely more predominant in movies, but there are, you know, the you know books that you could consider like slashers definitely... Okay. You know, they definitely are a thing. I think they're more aimed at more of like a young adult audience. And it might have to do with just the format because in the visual and audio format you know you can do those jump scares whereas that's hard to pull off a jump scare is hard to pull off in literature true but you know really good writers can do it and this kind of goes back to what you were saying about how you know a lot of people don't consider horror or or genre fiction in general you know romance fans sci-fi fantasy fans you know anybody who's a genre fan you know they kind of get a bad rep you know for not reading real literature mm -hmm. i contend that like for instance with horror mm -hmm. because that's one of my favorite genres you have to be a really good writer to pull off horror effectively because as you said it's all in your imagination number one you don't have the sound effects you know you you don't have That's a really good point so you have to be a good you have to be a really good writer also and this this applies to fantasy and sci-fi as well like let's say with uh, supernatural horror so like you know you've got ghosts and demons vampires werewolves all of that stuff if you're gonna make it believable Mm. You've got to be a good. You've got to be a good writer. Yeah. And if you are going to care about the protagonist, that character has to be really well developed. You know that reminds me. I once read a collection of letters between Isaac Asimov and Stephen King. Oh. And Asimov wrote a letter to Stephen King where he told him, 
you are the world's greatest writer. Wow. Wow. I would I would love to read that I would love to read that book. Yeah, it was it was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, and yeah, Stephen King cuz you know, on the surface, you know, like if you just like describe the plot of mo- a lot of Stephen King books, they're totally ludicrous. You're like, "What?" Like, mm-hmm. okay, it is a perfect example. Oh, there's a shape-shifting clown in the sewers who sometimes turns into a giant spider. What? It's but like a dream. The characters there's so, they have so much heart. And I think and and you know that's you know a lot of people yes. think you know oh well horror you know horror desensitizes you, and I disagree. I think that horror increases your empathy. And again, this goes back to if you've got well-developed characters, either in a book or a movie, that you you care about these people and you want them to get out of the situation. Never mind if the situation is like totally outlandish. You know, mm-hmm. I'm fairly confident that shape-shifting sewer clowns are never going to come for me. Mm-hmm. But when I was reading it, I was on the edge of my seat because I cared so much about the characters. They seemed like real people that I knew and you want them to defeat the shape-shifting sewer clown. Well put. So, and, and yeah, and that ties into your earlier statement that it's important to, for horror writers to to be good writers in order to pull that off. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then to kind of circle back, uh, we were talking about diversity with regards to equity and in- inclusion. On the one hand, you know, if you are a member of you know like the majority class and you're consuming literature or movies with a character who is different from yourself and you can build, you know, you put yourself in that person's shoes, then that builds empathy. But then on the other side of that, if you are a member of a minority mm-hmm. group, you want to see a protagonist like that you can personally identify with right. because, you know, oh yeah, I have like personally experienced, you know, these certain things and to see somebody who is like you overcoming the evil and defeating the evil can be very empowering. And there's a, there's a great quote, and I'm gonna paraphrase, but there's a great quote from Neil Gaiman. It's along the lines of, basically horror is our, they're our modern equivalent of fairy tales. You know, they, they don't just teach us, you know, about that evil exists, but about how to defeat the evil. Good point. And, you know, particularly with some of the more, you know, extreme horror, which, you know, would generally consider, you know, generally slashers, you know, would be considered more of the extreme end of horror. And by extreme, I mean more graphic, more gory, more mm-hmm. kills, just, just more, you know, and some of them are like very extreme, you know, they're just plain brutal and hard to watch, but they're hard to watch by design. You see someone resilient. You know, they get away at the end most of the time. A lot of the bad rap that horror gets, you know, like a lot of people, and this is generally people who don't consume a lot of horror literature or movies, say, oh, well, horror is just, it's misogynistic. It's nothing but scantily clad, you know, young girls getting killed for the amusement of teenage boys. But what's interesting, and you know, people have actually studied this, you know, the audience's teenage boys, they will identify with the female victim, which again goes to empathy. You're empathizing with somebody who is different than yourself. You know, on the one hand, people say, oh, it's misogynistic because it's a bunch of women getting hit, killed. 
On the other hand, most of the time, the protagonist is a woman. You know, most of the time, the men don't make it. The women are the ones who make it, and most of the time, the women are the ones, or our final girl, the one who's paying attention, is the one who figures out earliest in the book or the movie that, you know what, something is not right here. Something is wrong with this, you know, this, there's something wrong with this house. I don't know what it is, but we should, you know, we should get out of here. You know, so it's not just slashers, it's anything with a supernatural. And the characters who are not paying attention, mm-hmm. you know, because they're, they're too busy partying or whatever, and a lot of times the male characters, oh, no, no, you're just, you're just imagining it, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Right. Well, those guys don't last right. to the end of the movie. <laughs> so when you look at it that way, you right, can right. say that horror is actually very empowering because horror has female protagonists mm-hmm. way more often than a lot of other genres. Well, how would you define horror as a genre? So horror falls under the umbrella of speculative fiction. Speculative fiction, including things such as science fiction, fantasy, basically anything that, any literature that has kind of like an alternate reality, like a what if. 1984 is you know, like a dystopian, you know, it's not labeled as horror, but 1984 is definitely like a, it's got like, it's a dystopian, you know, kind of speculative, like what if. Right. Um, so horror falls under the umbrella of speculative fiction, and generally it's you know, roughly divided into two camps. You've got your supernatural horror, where there's, there's ghosts, there's you know, vampires, werewolves, demons, all of that stuff. And then you've got more of the psychological, which has to do with, I don't remember who said it, but hell is other people as some old famous person uh, long dead once said. I think that um, was Jean-Paul Sartre. I'll defer to you on that. Um, yeah, probably so. You know, in psychological horror, it's other people that you have to be afraid of. Serial killers, or we talked about this quite a bit with, uh, with our talk on Gothic. Mm. You know, a lot, one of the hallmarks of the Gothic genre is the guy who marries the young woman who has a fortune and then he gaslights her, tries to make her, you know, to make her seem that, like she's crazy so they can, he can either commit her and gain access to her fortune or she goes nuts and kills herself, something like that. So there's the, so roughly speaking, you've got your supernatural horror and then you've got your psychological or real, like reality-based, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, horror. And then of course, there are many subgenres after that. How would you classify Handmaid's Tale? Oh boy. So this I feel is where like personal, this kind of, this kind of goes back to diversity. Like if a female reading The Handmaid's Tale Mm. is a lot, closer to home (laughs) than if a man is reading it. Mm. It's classified as general fiction or, you know, literary fiction. It's a modern classic. I believe it was written in the mid 80s. The effect that literature has on you, I think does have a lot to do with when you encountered it in your life Mm. and what your, you know, what your personal experiences are. So when I first read The Handmaid's Tale, I was in my early 20s and I thought, wow, that's, that's really disturbing, but wow, good thing nothing like, but nothing, that's totally implausible. Nothing like that could ever happen. Yeah. 
and I reread it a couple of years ago, and it's not a long book. It's only about 300 pages. It took me a couple of months to read that book because I would read about 20 pages of it, and it was just like, this is way too heavy. I'd put it aside. I'd read another couple of books. Mm. I, would read some, I would read some supernatural horror, probably, was what I was doing because that to me is less frightening because I'm pretty, I'm fairly confident that a ghost is not coming for me. But The Handmaid's Tale is all about women's rights being taken away from them. First their jobs are taken away from them, then their bank accounts are taken away from them, then their actual names are taken away from them. The main character, her name is Offred, which means of Fred, because like, she doesn't have a name anymore. She is... Mm of breeding age, and so she is basically given to a rich family who the, the wife is unable to have children, and so she's basically a surrogate breeder. But she doesn't even have her own name anymore. Her name is of Fred because the dude is named Fred. That's horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, like, that's one of the scariest things I've ever read, and it's the sort of thing that like really sticks with you, and I have not been able to bring myself to read the sequel that came out a couple years ago. Because I just don't know. It's way easier for me to, to read about ghosts. You know, we're talking about how difficult some of these things are to read and to watch. Why do people like horror? Well, why do people, why do people get on roller coasters? It's a, you get an adrenaline rush, but it's controlled. It's safe. Okay. Now, personally, I'm a, I'm a big, huge wimp. I hate roller coasters. I would much rather sit in the safety of my house mm -hmm. with a book or a movie. There's an end point, too. Like, for, you're watching a movie, you, in 90 minutes it's over, and then you go on with your life. With okay. real world horror, you don't have that. So it can be, so you get an adrenaline rush, first of all, and there have been studies that have shown, like after that adrenaline wears off, you get that rush of endorphins, and that's like your payoff. You know, like after, after you've gone skydiving, which I would never do because I'm a great big wimp, but after you've, you know, been on the roller coaster or gone skydiving or whatever, you know, you get that adrenaline rush and then you live through it. So it's almost like changing relief. your consciousness? Well, yeah. And so, and then there's also, like, for, for a lot of people, and a lot of people don't get this, but people who like horror will understand what I'm talking about. There, there is, like, like, a cathartic element to it. I also feel like it, um, it helps give you pers a little bit of perspective. So let's say you've had like a not great day. You relate to work because you couldn't find your car keys and then you spilled coffee on yourself and then you just, you just had one of those days where nothing went right. But you made it home at the end of the day still intact. But you're, you're in a bad mood because you're, you know, because you had a terrible day. But if you put on you put on Rosemary's baby and you know this poor pregnant woman is being gaslit by her husband and all of her neighbors so that they can bring a Satan baby into the world, your day suddenly looks a lot better, doesn't it? <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like it's all like in a weird way for me if like if I've had a bad day, I don't want to watch a comedy. The happy people irritate me. Yeah. I want to watch something that's extreme. I can kind of, I can immerse myself and it's cathartic. What was scarier? Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, Ooh. or Jaws? Oh, fun. Okay. So again, 
so that this is where because on the one hand horror is universal right we all have the same very basic fears but on the other hand you bring your personal experiences and your personal beliefs to it as well kind of goes back to what i was saying about the handmaid's tale if you're a female handmaid's tale is just way more terrifying than if you're a male for me personally my ranking would be so rosemary's baby would be number one mm. And not for the whole, the satanic cults, Satan baby aspect of it. The part about, which I was just saying a minute ago about her husband, her life partner, the person that she's supposed to be building a life with is gaslighting her and has basically sold her out to the satanic cult neighbors so that he can get a good acting gig. <laughs> because his yeah. career is not going well and rather than just biting the bullet he decides you know oh well gee should i change careers should i maybe try harder or should i sell my wife's womb to a satanic cult so that i can get a good acting role <laughs> so your life partner gaslighting you and selling you out and not just not just not having your best interests at heart, but actively working against you. Like, that is a thing that people live with. Like, victims of domestic violence, they live with that. That is a very real, objective fear. So to me, that is the, the scary element of Rosemary's Baby. Mm -hmm. Sure. My next ranking would be Jaws, because sharks exist. Mm. Sharks eat people. It's not my number one fear because the sharks and I, they don't know this, the sharks don't know this, but we have an agreement. I, go, I don't go into their house, they don't come into my house. Shark movies do like legit frighten me, but if you don't go in the ocean, mm. you're fine. Yeah. So, but it's a real thing. It is a real thing that happens. So for, just for me personally, it's the real world stuff that could, that could happen and that does happen to people that's the scary part. What about uh, the, the Exorcist? Well, The Exorcist, so I love The Exorcist, but that would be my number three as far as uh, scary because, and again, just because of my personal belief system, like, you know, the satanic, the, the, uh, the demonic possession, like, that's just, that's not a thing that I've, hmm. that I believe in that I've ever been concerned about. And I saw that movie at a pretty young age. My parents don't know this. I hope they're not listening. Mm -hmm. I saw it at a pretty young age, and yeah, it was definitely creepy, but it didn't, didn't keep me up at night, didn't upset me. Seeing it, and I've now seen the movie many times because yeah. it's such a classic. Seeing it as an adult, the scary part is more in the metaphorical. You have this single mother, and then you have this girl who's, what, about 12. Mm -hmm. There's like that metaphoric, metaphorical thing you know their child hits puberty and they're mm. they turn into a, something else how many times have you heard a parent say you know god my kid turned 13 and it's like they're a completely different creature yeah. right because they literally i mean they've there's a lot going on there it's symbolic it's metaphorical too so like the fear of somebody that you love is changing into someone else who is going to actively harm you or themselves and you are power you don't know what to do to stop it like that's horrifying the whole subplot with um with father Marin and his mother and you know his mother ends up dying 
alone and he's so guilt-ridden, you know, and I mean, he's a priest, he has zero money. You know, his mother needs this assistance and he's not able to help her. And then, you know, so he's got all of this angst and, and grief and then she dies yeah. and he's just devastated by it. And like, that's a real thing, you know, like that is something that every, you know, most people are gonna have to, you know, contend with at some point taking care of, you know, their aging family members. So like as an adult, like I look at that and like that to me is the impactful thing. With those three movies, Rosemary's Baby, Jaws and Exorcist, do you have a preference as far as book or movie? There's no, there's, I would say it's automatically a personal bias, but I saw, so I saw all three of those movies. Mm. Uh, I, I was either in high school or college and I didn't read the books. I didn't read any of the books until several years later. And all of those movies are so iconic. Yes. You know, they all are, you know, they're so quotable. They have such a, you know, they're great movies. I mean, they are modern classics. And like those, even if you know nothing about horror, even if you've never seen those movies, you mentioned those three, everybody knows what we're talking about. Yeah. And they know the gist. So what's the value of having diversity in fiction? And I don't just mean in the horror genre, but uh, in fiction in general. Sure. So, um, and as you said, this applies to all fiction. So it's twofold. So on the one hand, uh, if you are, you know, a member of the, ma the majority, you know, race, religion, sexual orientation, and you're consuming fiction where the protagonist is a minority, then you basically are put in their shoes and so that builds empathy for people who are not like you and there have been many studies that have said you know the best way to build empathy with people who are have different experiences than you is to you know expand your circle of friends well if that's not you know necessarily an option for you you can expand your circle in fiction, you can have all kinds of fictional friends. I have, I, we all have novels that we love and I consider those people my, you know, imaginary friends basically. And then on the other side of the coin is if you are, you know, a member of the minority, I imagine you probably get really tired of reading stuff where the protagonist is a straight white Christian male. You know, mm. that probably gets old real quick. You want to see people who are like you and do have your, you know, similar experiences and seeing someone who is like you overcoming obstacles, you know, regardless of, you know, regardless of genre. So there's a great documentary that just came out a couple, uh, couple years ago called Horror Noir. And it talks all about the, um, the history of black horror movies. And it's a great movie because they, they interview all these people who are, you know, actors, directors, film historians. It's a, it's a, I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it. And one of the comments that really struck me was from Tanana Rivdu. She's a author. She's written a lot of um, horror, speculative fiction, but she also, she said black history is black horror and that one of the things that is great about fiction 
is that you can, in a sense, rewrite history. You know, you can take slavery as fiction, so you can have them overcoming the oppressors, the abusers. Yeah, yeah. And so no, that can really be, you know, psychologically like a very empowering thing. And there's a really interesting trend that's been going on with horror over the last probably about 15 years or so where uh, authors of color and LGBTQ authors have been reclaiming cosmic horror. Now, cosmic horror is not a term that is used a lot. Most people would refer to that as Lovecraftian horror after H.P. Mm. Lovecraft. Right. H.P. Lovecraft, while extremely influential in his writings, was also a really hardcore racist. Um, and he was writing primarily back in the 20s. Okay. And even for the 1920s, from what I've read about him, even his friends thought that he was really extreme. <laughs> like, even his friends were like, dude, mellow out. Even a for little the bit. 20s. Even for the 20s. And so, but there have been many books. It's basically, basically like trying to like reclaim Lovecraftian horror from Lovecraft because a lot of his works, I mean, they are overtly racist. Mm. Like, here's a perfect example. So, um, Victor Laval, who is uh, a black author, and I've read a few of his books, he's great. He, uh, a few years ago, wrote a novella called The Ballad of Black Tom. He takes the setting and a couple of the characters from an H.P. Lovecraft short story called The Horror at Red Hook, mm -hmm. which was written, I believe, in 1925. But he has it with a young black man who's in his 20s is the protagonist. Interesting. And you see through his eyes, you know, all of the racism that he has to deal with of that time. He's the good guy taking a story and it's a really racist i just i just read the horror at red hook mm. it's only a few pages long there's hardly any story on it because the majority of it is hp lovecraft ranting about immigrants so it's basically like oh i'm going to take this framework i'm going to go totally other way with it you quoted that professor saying black history is black horror mm -hmm. you, know, you could you could even extend that and say female history is female horror sure you know yeah and the other the thing also too like with so much of horror you know a lot of it is is metaphor because as neil gaiman said you know it's basically it's like they're like modern you know they're, they're the modern equivalent of fairy tales with horror you can pretty much any social topic racism sexism science run amok the destruction of the environment, almost any topic that you want to think of mm. that is considered like a societal problem, you can find a work of horror or dark fantasy or science fiction that is going to address that either metaphorically or outright. Which current titles do you consider relevant to this topic? And which of those deserve the most attention? Here's one that is brand spanking new. It was just published uh, the beginning of June, and it's a debut novel that got just an absolute rave review from NPR. It's called The Chosen and the Beautiful by Ni Vo. This is a LGBTQ reimagining of The Great Gatsby with supernatural elements. So hmm. that is, mm -hmm. so that is, and I also, as an aside, I want to say if, if you've listened this long, you are either a horror fan or you are at least horror curious. But let's say, you know, if you're still not quite sure, 
you know, and you want to maybe give something with a little bit of horror elements a try, but not dive into full-on, you know, hardcore horror. Um, Mashups, genre blends are a great start. You know, this one is basically historical fiction with an LGBTQ protagonist mm. reimagining The Great Gatsby in the 1920s. That sounds like fun to me. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I'm, oh, I'm all in. I am on the hold list. Passing on, the next item. This one I'm really excited about for a couple of reasons. So The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. Mm -hmm. Stephen Graham Jones has been called the Jordan Peele of horror literature, but he has been, uh, which makes it sound like he just came out of nowhere or something, but Stephen Graham Jones has been writing for, you know, a couple of decades at least. And I'm so glad he's finally, this, this book has gotten a lot of attention mm -hmm. and I'm so glad. I read this in about a day and a half. Um, so it is uh, a dark novel of revenge, cultural identity, and the cost of breaking from traditions. Um, so he's uh, American Indian, and it follows uh, the story of these four uh, American Indians uh, who they go on a hunting trip that goes wrong when they're young, and then there are the repercussions of that that follow them through their lives and literally and figuratively haunt them. Loved it. Um, the next one uh, is Ring Shout, uh, which came out in 2020 also, caught by P. Jali Clark. Uh, this one is short and sweet. My only thing that I didn't like about it was that it wasn't long enough because I loved it and I loved the characters. Hmm. So this, uh, again, this is kind of a mashup of genres. It is a dark fantasy historical novella with a supernatural twist on the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very original, original concept, really well written, lots of action, loved the, I just loved it. Another, another couple, these are a little bit older, but I loved them so much I might just reread them because they're just fun. This is a duology, uh, Maplecroft from 2014 mm. and Chapelwood from 2015, okay. which is the series is called The Borden Dispatches by Cherie Priest. So this is a historical fiction with elements of cosmic horror with Lizzie Borden as the protagonist and cool. LGBTQ representation. There's a lot going on. It <laughs> sounds like it shouldn't work. It does, because Cherie Priest is a great writer, and they're just, they're just fun. Cool. Um, another one, this one I have not read, but it just sounds super interesting. Uh, from 2018, Frankenstein in Baghdad by Ahmed Sadawi. I'm just gonna read a very brief synopsis of it here. Go for it. Uh, from the rubble-strewn rubble streets of US-occupied Baghdad, Hadi, a scavenger and an oddball fixture at a local cafe, collects human body parts and stitches them together to create a corpse. His goal, he claims, is for the government to recognize the parts as people and give them a proper burial. But when the corpse goes missing, a wave of eerie murders sweeps the city and reports stream in of a horrendous looking criminal who, though shot, cannot be killed. Hadi soon realizes he's created a monster, one that needs human flesh to survive. First from the guilty and then from anyone that gets in its path. <laughs> um, a prize winning novel by, quote, Baghdad's new literary star, according to the New York Times. 
Uh, Frankenstein in Baghdad captures white-knuckle horror and black humor, the surreal reality of contemporary Iraq. Hmm. I wonder so, if that was written in Arabic and then translated it was. to English. It was. Wow. Yeah. And we have, we have the book. And this, it is on my, to be, it's actually been on my TBR list for a while. Now, are all these books that you're mentioning, are these all in the catalog oh, yes. for the Maricopa County Library? Oh, yes, District? absolutely. In at least one format. Has horror ruined camping for, for some people? Now, that I can't specifically speak to. I'm an indoorsy kind of person. Just, I'm, I'm allergic to the world. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I am not a camper, but yeah, it's a deterrent. <laughs> so there for are me some, personally. So there are some pros and cons. Yeah, for me personally, it is definitely a deterrent. But I tell you what, if I ever do go camping, I'm going to have my comfortable shoes and my flashlight's going to be charged and I'm going to have backup, like, you know, I'm going to have like a sat phone in case I don't have like, real cell phone coverage, I will be prepared if What's I go it? into, if I go camping, I will be as prepared as prepared can be. Did you learn that from a horror movie? Probably. I've learned a lot of things from horror movies. <laughs> if you were a character in a horror novel or movie, who would you be? <laughs> Randy from Scream. Oh, the, uh, the movie store clerk? Yes. Poor Randy. Nobody listens to him. <laughs> he, yes, he works in the video. He's a, he's a movie geek, especially horror. Uh -huh. And he works in, a, in the video store, which was still a thing. I think the movie came out in 96, if I recall. You know, we like movie. <laughs> like Before the, Blockbuster closed. Right, yeah, the video store was still a thing. And all, he just keeps trying to tell people, you know, what the rules are. He knows right away that they are, you know, that they have now entered, you know, slasher movie territory. He's trying to tell all of his friends, you know, what the rules are, you know, never say I'm going to be right back. Um, you know, all of the things that are going to doom you and nobody listens to him. They mock him. And mm -hmm. then there's a scene about, I don't know, probably halfway three fourths of the way through the movie where they're all having a house party and all poor Randy, all he wants is for everyone to just sit down and drink their drink and watch Halloween and appreciate it as much as he does, but everybody ignores him. They decide they're gonna go running around, and guess what? None of those people live for the sequel. <laughs> also, and the, the, I don't know, the, this is a bit of a spoiler, but you know, the movie is you know, pretty old at this point. So Randy does live to the end of Scream, but not because he has any like, you know, physical prowess or anything gets he knows lucky. The rules. He he knows the rules and he gets he gets wounded, but he knows what the rules are and between knowing the rules and just some basic dumb luck, he does manage to survive when hardly anybody else does. So people should have just listened to Randy. So yeah, I identify with Randy. I could see that. So who would you be? I would be Roy Scheider <laughs> in Jaws. Roy Scheider's a, a solid choice because he makes it to the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kristen, 
We've reached the end of another Check This Out episode. Thank you for being with us again today. And thanks to our audience for listening along. And we will see you next time on Check This Out. Thank you for listening to Shelf Logic. Make sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Follow us on social media where we are at MCLDAZ. 